What's up, heroes? Welcome to episode 75 of the Producer Life Podcast. Today I've got James Landino, an internationally recognized video game composer and DJ based out of Los Angeles, California. His electronic music bridges the gap of gaming, anime, and nightclub culture, and he's amassed millions of plays across multiple platforms. He's best known for his work in the musically acclaimed video game No Straight Roads, along with other projects including Tower of God, Chinethim, Osu, Ruby, Cytus 2, Amplitude HD, and Dropmix. He was once an audio developer for Harmonix Music Systems, although now he works full-time as independent talent working with the entertainment industry's best professionals. His notable clients include Sega, Square Enix, Monster Cat, Avex, Crunchyroll, and Rooster Teeth. In addition to his work as a composer, James tours the world as a performer and speaker celebrating video games and anime, and has shared the stage with renowned acts Inflow, Teddy Lloyd, and Hyper Potions. Recently, he founded Rare Drop, a music publishing company dedicated to building talent within the video game music scene. During the interview, James talks about his experiences as a game composer, why mixing for games is so uniquely challenging, playing for gaming convention raves, and why Tokyo is such an interesting city. But first, cue the intro music. James, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. I'm glad you're here tonight. And um, as I was thinking about where to start this interview, I, I thought maybe we would start with your website. Um, one of the one of the bits of advice that I had heard a long time ago is that your website should represent you in such a way that somebody can immediately understand what it is you're about. And you've got a very concise way of describing yourself on your website. You uh, you say you're a music composer and DJ working on video games, anime, and live performances. And that that seems like a good synopsis for us to kind of use as as an outline tonight. Yeah. Um, so that website, I'm glad to hear uh, – sorry, I can't talk. I'm glad to hear you say that because I've <laughs> actually um, – that website is brand new. It's like, you know, like a four-month project with a web designer over the last year. And it came out, I think, back in like April, I believe. And – one of the big focuses was essentially what you're describing because in my, the way that I positioned myself in my career, I can do a lot of different things. And as a consequence of the, of past experiences, sometimes a person from the video game industry might be confused of like, Oh, this guy does like DJ stuff and EDM stuff, but I thought he did game stuff. And then the other side of the equation, you know, some EDM promoters will be like, Oh, I thought this guy does video game stuff. Like what's his deal. Right. And so the challenge for me uh, was always how do I kind of communicate both in a harmonious way where some or anybody could go on my website or hear about me and immediately understand this guy is this niche carving his own lane doing video game music and dance music. Yeah, and I think you nailed it there. Um, one of the things that I was curious about, though, is you you self-identify as a composer and everybody else that I've ever interviewed has identified as a producer. Um, is there a reason you you use that? Yeah, that word. Yes. Um, uh, I suppose there's two reasons. One, uh, which is, I would say I grew up uh, as a musician, as a composer. I didn't come into this as a producer, per se, even if that was the name that was probably associated to me. 
um, because I was always interested in composing for video games. Um, that's how I got started doing this, you know, when I was 12 years old. And so that name just sticks with me more so and what I identify with. Um, but on the other side of it, it's it's funny. When I'm in a room with other producers, um, particularly with big name producers, I guess, without name dropping or anything, um, I've learned that producers will more often give me the time of day or honestly, anybody will give me more the time of the day in a networking space. When I say I'm a game composer or composer versus a producer, because it, it helps me stick out more and kind of on the hmm. inverse side of things, if I'm in a room with a bunch of composers, you know, for, for networking and like, like if I'm in like a game conference, if I say I'm a producer for dance music, you know, doing game stuff, people's, you know, people will kind of also inquire further. So it's to my advantage sometimes to use different labels in different environments. But overall, I tend to lean towards composer. Okay. So you mentioned that you, you had a musical background and you kind of got started at 12. Can you go backwards a little bit in time and talk me through how you got your start with video games? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, to be honest, it even starts back when I was like five, six years old playing my first video games. I, you know, ever since I played video games, I'd always been enamored with that medium. And even as a child, I knew that I wanted to work on video games and I didn't know what exactly, but I knew I wanted to do video games. It wasn't until I was 12 years old when I had discovered this game uh, that I believe is still online to this day. It's called Flash Flash Revolution, which is a Flash based version of a popular music game called Dance Dance Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so on this website, they had these uh, on the forums, uh, they had open submissions for any musician who wants to put the music into the game through, through an approval process. And it, for some reason, that hit like a switch um, because I had been playing piano um, for a few years um, just re kind of recreationally. And, but I was like, wait a second, this game, uh, this, or this, this website is saying that they want music for their game. Wow, I could be part of video games. That sounds so cool. I guess I know piano. I'll go be a musician. And that was kind of the start of the beginning. Wow. Okay. Um, so how did you develop yourself from there? And what were sort of your next steps as you journeyed down that path? How did you get into the electronic component of it, for example? Well, so uh, from so Dance Dance Revolution uh, actually has a lot of electronic music. And funny enough, I would say a lot of producers in this kind of uh, generation of music that we hear, a lot of them, I find, tend to be inspired by rhythm games like Dance Dance Revolution or Beat Mania. A lot of the Japanese rhythm mm -hmm. games, uh, you know, like artists like Paul Robinson, especially, he makes it very clear that he's inspired by those uh, titles. And so for a lot of people, including myself, that was their first exposure to electronic music, albeit, you know, a very, you know, a lot of Japanese produced music and not so much from the Western side of things. But mm -hmm. over time, you know, naturally, as as electronic music has become more mainstream, uh, the, those the 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 gaps between Western music uh, or Western dance music and Western Japanese or sorry, Western dance music and I suppose Japanese, you know, Asian dance music kind of combined, uh, I think, in, in influences. Okay. So, so you had some, some exposure to, um, sort of the genre through the video games, you had some technical skills through, uh, your, your piano. And then when did you first pick up like Ableton? How did that come about? Um, Ableton specifically, I would say I picked it up around college, but yeah, I've been using pretty much every DAW under the sun until that point <laughs> using, you know, FL studio and reason and Reaper, 
uh, logic at one point. I was, you know, just kind of jumping around. I think around like age of 19 or 20, around college, uh, I went to Berkeley College of Music to study music production and video game music there. And I think yeah. that's where I made the big leap. Okay. What was, what was that like going through a formal college structure to um, learn, learn the processes in the industry? I, I did a MOOC with um, a massive open online course with Berkeley Online several years oh, ago. Nice. Um, yeah, it, actually, interestingly, um, Ableton gave me a student discount because I was in a free online MOOC. Nice. I sent them the uh, registration. They're like, there you go, 40% off. Fantastic. Woo-hoo! Let's go. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, I am also a student of Berkeley, uh, just not quite the same degree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Berkeley was a pretty interesting place. Um, uh, looking back on it, what I would say is that I didn't learn too, too much on the actually, I would say I didn't become a better musician from Berkeley. Well, more or less, I didn't become a better producer from Berkeley. I became a better professional in the industry because of Berkeley. Berkeley did a great job of kind of framing like like I would say a lot of the foundations of what it means to be a good professional, um, you know, in, in what their eyes is of what they think is a good professional, of course. Um, but they gave me a lot of the foundation of, you know, like best practices of the industry and best practices of networking, best practices of that sort of thing. Um, and kind of going off that. Um, because when I think of, because by and large, a lot of the techniques that I have been doing uh, up until that point of college, um, I still do now. My my philosophies and approaches to music have relatively been the same since I've been you know, 12, 13 years old, which is kind of crazy to say. But yeah, that's how it's mm-hmm. been for me. So a lot of times producers and, and, and in this case, composers, you know, they they wind up finding a particular sound or genre that they they sort of stick with. And I, I think we could right. characterize, you know, a lot of what you do is sort of video game uh, music, but as I was listening to your catalog on Spotify, you have an incredibly diverse style. Mm-hmm. You've got everything from electro swing to progressive house to, uh, you know, it's just you. You are remarkably diverse in your catalog. I guess is the best way right. to say it. How how did that come about? Do you have a was that deliberate? Hey, I need a particular sound for a game, so I'm going to go study a new genre or. Pretty much, yeah. So the the you know ever since the beginning when I started writing music, my philosophy was always I want to be able to have any idea in my head, no matter what it is, and be able to execute to some proficiency. And that that's even now that's still the goal. Because I try not to. Uh, it's ironically that's kind of changing for branding purposes. But traditionally speaking, um, the way how I got into this and the way how I've always learned is. Um, I always just want to learn as much as I can. And I always want to feel like I can write any style of music, any blend or, you know, mixtures of genres. It doesn't really matter. I want my creativity to be expansive based on what I know, as opposed to kind of telling myself like, well, I only know house music or, well, I should only write house music because that's what people know me for. I don't really want to kind of pigeonhole pigeon, uh, myself into that kind of thing. Not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with that, by the way. Um, I'm actually recognizing the consequences of being too diverse from a branding perspective. But by and large, you know, I always want to feel like I have an idea. I want to make that idea. And that's it. Yeah, it, it, it seems like and, and this is I've had several people on on talking about sync licensing, right. for example, and talking about the benefits of being able to have a very, you know, explore your passions, explore whatever genre you like. It doesn't matter. Whereas there's a certain many times a branding ex- expectation for newer artists where 
you know, your fans like a particular sound, they expect to hear more of that from you. And until you've been around for, you know, five, 10, 15 years, it's, you, you may imperil your existing fan base if you deviate too much from that original sound. So I think even more so it's gone. I think the way how people digest content now, I, to me, it seems abundantly clear that people will only follow a channel or a content creator or whoever it is. They, they really just want that one, by and large, they want that one thing from that one content creator and that's it. And they want the hyper-focused, hyper-specific kind of specialization, I guess, if I could put it that way. And so, like I said, over the past year, I recognize this and I've had to kind in my opinion, I've had to um, recalibrate my branding and content to reflect that because that seems to be the most uh, effective way to get my name out there. Okay. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean by, I mean, how are you both pitching yourself as a video game music creator with who, who can master any genre, but at the same time, you know, telling your fans, Hey, I've got this awesome sound. Come listen to me. The So that's a good question. And the way I'm trying to parse it now, is, for one thing, whenever I tell people I'm a video game composer, I really lean to the fact that I'm a electronic video game composer. And that, that one word to me has made a lot of difference, I think, in terms of pitching myself to developers or publishers, um, because that that makes me stick out compared to the vast sea of game composers who tend to be more rock or more orchestral. So on that lens alone, um, by saying I'm this electronic composer um that weeds out a lot of projects where sure i could do rock music or i could do orchestral music but most likely i'll get the work um that sonically also blends nicely or brands nicely i suppose um with original music that's also electronic music and so that's kind of where the times are coming in i guess what i've kind of realized over time is that or at least now i'm in the position where i can be more choosy about the projects i'm doing that fit better with my branding. Um, not that I won't do projects outside of that, but um, from a promotional side, that's how I tend to approach it now. Okay. How did you approach it coming out of Berkeley? Well, I mean, I assume you didn't have people knocking on your door as soon as you got out. How did you start building this um, this career that you've got now right out of college? Um, so it's a, I'll answer... That's a bit of a tricky question to answer from my perspective because I already had some kind of internet following uh, leading up into college. I went over under a different alias at the time in high school, and I had some kind of internet following. And then at some point, I decided to transition into my real name. Uh, and so I already had some kind of fan overlap who was following my works or following my projects. And as a result, I had projects during my time in college. Um, but I would say to kind of properly answer your question, um, you know, I didn't really focus on electronic dance music until post-college when I had met a, f a friend of mine who worked at this game company called Harmonix. Because when I had just got out of college, the goal was to get into the games industry. That was that was priority number one. And so fortunately, I was able to succeed and get a job at a company called Harmonix, which works on music rhythm games so you know <laughs> you know so I'll, so as we kind of so as i kind of elaborate more on the things i'm doing oh there's there's conveniently a lot of tie-ins to music and games in pretty much my entire portfolio from you know since the beginning um and i've kind of just kind of i've owned the fact that i've specialized in uh that gap of music and video games okay so 
your one of your recent, I mean, your catalog is quite large. Right. So a couple of the recent ones that I was hoping maybe we could talk about, mm-hmm. um, the No Straight Roads game collaboration that came out last year. Mm-hmm. That was a, a pretty massive product with uh, Metronomic. Yes. Tell us first a little bit about the game and then how the how the process of composing the tracks that you wrote on that came about. Sure. So, uh, so No Shade Roads is a uh, musical action platformer where you you have to uh, defeat the evil record label with the power of rock music. And so, ironically enough, you know, as we're talking about electronic music, kind of the joy of the project was I was essentially writing music for the bad guys. Um, it, it was kind of fun being the villain, right? Um, and so, and so, so through that process of the game, uh, the way that what was so special about the game actually was that as you fight against uh, these these musical bosses, um, the music dynamically changes to different genres. So, so you know, you you play as these this duo, uh, Mayday and Zook, who are in this rock band called uh, Bunk Bed Junction. And you defeat these evil EDM bosses, you know, like ranging from, you know, house music to future bass, uh, you know, to, you know, to synthwave, right? And so someone, so one of us would write the original piece of music, usually in, you know, some either rock or some other genre. And then I would write the electronic version of that song. Um, and so as you fight the boss and you deal more damage or do uh you know activate certain actions in the game the music will will blend from rock music to dance music to kind of create that effect of you know the kind of like that real like you know bow the bands kind of musicality and that hmm. so that was a really interesting process of of writing music for that game yeah that's that sounds really cool out of curiosity what genre is the final boss so the final boss of the game uh Spoilers for those of you who don't who don't want to hear this, you know, plug your ears. Uh, but so the final boss of the game uh, is actually a you find out that the the person who runs the record label was actually a rock musician in the first place and then switched to dance music uh, because I guess it was more marketable, you know, or was the evil, you know, EDM is evil in, the, in that world. And so um, the final boss uh, was actually a very strong hybrid of rock music, electronic music and orchestral music all in one in this kind of big epic battle. Interesting. Okay. Did you have a favorite track out of that project? Ah, good question. I would say, you know, I think the track that I go back most to, um, one of the bosses is a K-pop boy band. And so I wrote the I wrote the track, <laughs> I wrote the original song for that, and that was a lot of fun to write some kind of pseudo K-pop music. That was a lot of fun. Okay. So when you're when you're asked to write a track that's in a genre you haven't written before, whether that's electro swing or K-pop or something like that, how do you teach yourself a new genre? Mm. Let me think about that for a second. Um, I think the first place I would go to is a reference point. Um, usually these days, because I've written a lot of different genres, I think when I'm presented a genre that I'm not that familiar with, um, it's usually through a client for a project and the best place I start with are a few reference points. And then from there, um, what I'm usually identifying is what are the key sounds or, or instrumentation? If I can, uh, at least get the instrumentation down, uh, or of what I, of what I'm able to create within, you know, reasonable time, um, that gets me to, I think about 80% of the result I want. Um, because I can write music for days. I can just keep writing forever. My, my, my challenge as a, from a producer lens, my challenge was always, you know, 
being able to produce their sound that I've just kind of had meticulously worked on over years and years of practice. But as a composer, I can just write a song forever until the end of time. So I think for me, it's starting at the reference point of what sounds do I need to create and then uh, uh, executing the writing of those sounds. Okay. What about, you know, how do you, do you just use a reference track to try to figure out how this genre works in terms of arrangements and rhythmic patterns? And are you just listening to a couple of different reference tracks and picking it out? Or do you, do you go out and research it on Wikipedia or um, so by, by and large, um, I'm just using my ears. Uh, I've trained, oh, I've, okay. spent, I've spent a lot of years just doing ear training. Um, I got very good at my ear. Uh, I got very strong ears musically because uh, when I was a child, I would transcribe a lot of video game music that just doesn't, doesn't have sheet music for it. At least back, back then there wasn't any sheet music for it. And so I got, yeah. I got really good at being able to just figure out, oh, these chords are this just by hearing it, or this melody is this just by hearing it. And so then moving onward into college is when I started practicing, oh, you can get this sound by, you know, by making this wave with this effect and da, da, da. And I spent a lot of time practicing just that kind of ability of mentally hearing something or hearing something in actuality from a reference track and just literally recreating it to the best of my ability. Okay. Do you, as you're getting ready to take on a video game project, how does how does that typically evolve? You know, they, they will send you some reference tracks. Do you get to play a demo version of the game or do you just work off of a description of the game or, you know, it's funny. Video games, video game development is kind of, it's all over the place. Every project is kind of a new, different kind of chaos. Um, <laughs> it really is. There's, it's, it, you know, you would think there'd be more standardization in how to approach game development. And there is kind of, but by and large, you know, my, my experiences with no straight roads is completely different than the kind of games I worked on from a process standpoint was completely different than how I worked on games at harmonics, for example. And even at harmonics, those, that process was completely different um, based on, you know, on whatever title I was working on. So, you know, sometimes, you know, if I'm fortunate enough, I'll be able to play a demo or a prototype or proof of concept of the game. But, you know, for example, on a game like drop mix, which is a DJ card game, um, I was involved in the, the prototyping process, right? Um, versus say no straight roads where i was involved towards almost the alpha beta which is towards the very end of development so it's really just all over the place in terms of when i'm involved and what kind of involvement uh i'm you know i'm involved with because most of my projects are music games and so different kinds of uh video games which involve music means that i may need to be more involved at different stages of development if that makes sense it does. And it's it's interesting you say that because um, some of the folks that have come on and talked about sync licensing, for example, have told me that for TVs and movies, frequently music is the very last yeah. step. And so there's a major push and a big rush last minute to pick a song, make a decision. And it, it's a very quick last minute process. It's interesting to me that video games, maybe some of them are like that, but others start planning the music very early on. Right. And uh very rarely um yeah when you're we're in the sync world that's a different kind of music application um than than kind of what i'm doing because i would consider myself in that role more as like an audio developer for video games um and a game composer than let's say you know like like i don't want to put words into other in other producers mouths who you know who've come on our show but i imagine even though they have music in a game, they may not immediately say that they're a game composer, I would assume. I think they would just say, you know, I'm a producer who's had the music in video games, right? 
Um, and so, yeah. so, right, so my role is a bit more uh, different because the kind of skill set needed in that role is so much more nuanced in understanding game development, especially when there's uh, games with music as part of the core gameplay. Okay. And, and I'm sorry if I'm doing a lot of comparisons with the, no, the sync world that I'm, I'm a little more familiar with. But one of the things that, that they've also described is when you're writing for sync, you basically break your tracks down into multiple different marketable assets. Right. You've got, you know, instrumental pieces, you know, maybe an orchestral piece you've got. So each of those is, is syncable in and of itself. Yeah. You're creating different assets mm-hmm. in the hopes that, you know, somebody will pick it up and it, it makes it easier for the music manager if they've got multiple different versions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of contrast that with what is the process like when and what's what's going through your head as you are writing a track for like a boss fight in a video game so i'll I'll try not to be a broken record as i say this but the the truthful answer is that it's completely different per project um so so in a case like no straight roads um because the reason why is that every game i've worked on has a completely different audio engine You you have to think about of how the game's tech handles the audio so in a game like No Straight Roads, the, the, the basics of the tech, or I'm explaining the basics of the tech, uh, is that there are there were three or four different stem, I'd say, you know, three different stems. There is a bass stem, uh, a drum stem, and a harmony stem that we had to kind of separate into each version of the song. And so in a boss level, um, so for the boss levels in No Straight Roads, there were three different genres per boss, meaning that there's nine stems total of the three different genres. And so... I have to, when I'm writing a piece of music, uh, in that example, I have to write a song knowing that it can work with the different mashups of the different stems that we could play with. So the way you're, you're it, it's kind of, for most music games I've worked on, the kind of recurring theme that I see is that it's kind of like a musical puzzle. How can I make this song I'm writing also be written in a way where if someone else were to remix it, it can still work nicely while leaving room for them to be creative in their own to make their own style of remix. Does that make sense? I th- I think so. <laughs> so you've got you've got nine different stems and then I guess depending on what phase of a level or a particular fight different stems may uh, kind of automatically be mixed in by the audio engine and so you have to make sure that regardless of how all those pieces fall together you don't wind up with you know squelchy resonant frequencies and and they they all have to play together regardless of where they come in and out is that more or less exactly yeah it's less less on the mixing end because honestly mixing for video games is an absolute nightmare and arguably impossible from a from a true engine you know mixing engineers perspective it, i would say mixing for games is very very difficult because there's just so much dynamic audio happening at any given moment any time it's not like normal quote unquote normal linear music where you know the mix is set because you know you play a song from start to finish you know uh you know just incorporating ambience and sound effects and at what points in time like you know it becomes a very uh involved process to make sure everything uh frequency wise sounds good let alone harmonically speaking when we get into games like no straight roads which involves uh dynamic harmonic changing hmm wow i'd, I'd never thought about that i I guess I had assumed it was kind of like sidechain compression. When a video game sound effect goes off, you punch a boss in the nose, you know, it, it ducks the audio frequency, but I guess there's a lot more that goes into that. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's that simple. Other times it can be, you know, more involved where 
you know, maybe if if a sound effect because if if you punch a boss in the nose, for example, and the audio ducks, what happens if you keep punching them? Then they keep then the audio just keeps saying ducked, and it might sound terrible. In this theoretical example, I'm providing right, um, and so okay. you have to kind of think of different ways of okay, if they keep punching it, maybe then we don't maybe we duck it the first time, but after you know three or five seconds, we can't just keep ducking it. You know, there there's all this kind of then we're getting to the layer of the psychoacoustics where okay, if I punch someone the first time and you hear that ducking, if you keep repeatedly punching them. The, the our brains are going to keep assuming that sound is there, even if we can't hear it as clearly. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I imagine it gets even more complicated when you start dealing with multiplayer games. Exactly. Um, you know, what sounds are you playing for which player at a given time? If one character is swinging a sword and another one is casting spells, can the sword swinger hear the full effect of the spell casting, for example? Exactly. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with a lot of uh, multiplayer games, like if you play games like Overwatch or Call of Duty or... Um... Uh, World of Warcraft. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, World of Warcraft <laughs> is a great example, right? And so what the, one of the biggest challenges in audio development, in an example you're providing, is audio prioritization. It's essentially what sounds should we actually even prioritize for the player to hear? Because, you know, in a world where there's so many players in front of you, where in theory you could hear literally thousands of sound effects at once. We obviously don't want you to hear that. So we want you to hear, we, want, we have a system th- uh, that, we, that we code and program that decides, okay, what's most important? Okay, if you're in front of this enemy monster, we want, we want to make sure you hear that enemy monster sound effects, even though some other guy next to you is doing these other things. And that's just one nice example, right? So it can get really involved really quickly. Yeah, and when you're dealing with first-person shooters, you, oh, yeah. you certainly need to know directional information, and and proximity is really important. Exactly. So, yep. Interesting. So all of that, all of that, I guess you said we program. Are you involved with that programming process, or is that just something that you kind of provide some input into? Uh, more on the design and input side. I'm not usually doing the literal programming because that's not my forte. Um, usually, there's like a dedicated team of audio programmers. Um, but you know, for for a game like Drop Mix, the DJ card game I had you know men- mentioned prior, um, that was more where I was some that was a project where I was really involved in the design of okay, how do we want to create this system, and then someone executes that system to create. That game sounds really interesting to me. So it's a, a DJ card game. How does that? How does that work? Tell us some more about Drop Mix. Yes, I would say uh, from an audio system. It is, I think, one of the most interesting. I'm biased, of course, but I think it's one of the most interesting and involved. <laughs> I think it's one of the interesting, most complex eye systems I've seen in a video game. And so, uh, Drop Mix is a DJ card game that Hasbro had collaborated with uh, with Harmonix. And so, it, 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 the term that Hasbro used was called digital. It was digital and physical because you were dealing with a physical board and physical cards, and these cards had inside had RFID chips with with uh with baked in audio inside those cards like think think of think of like 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 you're like like a like a you're a dj you know and so think of every card as a vinyl cd right and so Mm -hmm. inside every card is a piece of music that you play on this special board that then plays that piece of music or that's in this case uh, a stem of music and so we basically created this whole system where anyone could play any you know assortment of 150 cards and it would musically sound good, no matter what tempo, what key, doesn't matter. We we programmed it where you know where there'd be a slave and master, and we'd kind of you know built that in such a smart, integrated way where literally anyone with no musical understanding could just play any cards and have fun. 
wow, how in the world did you do that without just sticking to a couple of compatible keys? So the way that we did it, um, I'll do my best to kind of summarize because it can get a little crazy, but the way that we approached it was that the first card you play in the mat would essentially be the master, um, you know, that would dictate, okay, we're in this key and this BPM. And then any subsequent cards you play after would um, would dictate to, would, would change to that. Um, okay. And so, and so naturally you're gonna get a lot of weird edge cases where it's like, okay, if we're playing a card that's at 120 BPM, but this song's at 180, how the heck can you make that sound good? And, you know, there's, of course, we have to kind of kind of do some mathematical fudging around to make it fit as best we can. But, you know, but we do the best we can, more or less. Um, it still sounds good to me. And um, and so in when the, and so what we do also to kind of break the monotony was we'd have these uh, special cards. Um, I forgot the name of the moment because it's been a few years since. But there'd be a special card that would basically, when you play that special card, it would then become the new master. And then it would all the cards on the board would shift into that new key, that new BPM. And so you could, if so, if you had a board and a set of cards, right, you could just mix and match for literally hours, just kind of having your own DJ set. Hmm. I am going to have to go look up that game. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. We honest, honestly, honestly, like, you know, of all the games I've ever worked on um, like that, like even as we're building the prototype for this, like we would just spend hours after work just playing the, the tech because the tech is just so it was so much fun. Yeah, that does sound cool. So, um, all right, that brings up another question. So, as let's say I go out and find a copy of Drop Mix and I, I, I purchase it, how are you paid as the composer? Do you on most of these agreements are you paid back end royalties? Are you paid an upfront fee? Is it some combination of both? So how does that work for you? So for harmonics, um, so I was a full-time employee at harmonics. I was essentially an audio developer. So in that context, I didn't get any kind of residuals from those sales because I was paid a you know full-time salary. Um, but okay. but post harmonics, um, to kind of answer your question, um, you know, as an independent contractor or as a client, um, you know, typically with corporate, it's usually a buyout because uh, companies don't like the idea of giving an individual some kind of control of any kind. That's just how, because they're a little paranoid and I understand why to some degree. Um, but on the more indie level or, you know, I guess double A level of game developers, um, there's a bit more negotiation involved where, so for a game like No Straight Roads, for example, um, I would get residuals on the soundtrack, right? Um, I get paid enough front and I get residuals on the soundtrack. Um, there have been a few rare cases where I would get game sales if that was part of negotiation for some reason, if they, if they didn't have immediate budget for me. Um, but yeah, in most projects, I would get the upfront uh, commission rate and then the residuals of soundtrack sales. Okay. So we've talked about a couple of different games, sort of a, a fairly recent one, one from a few years back. Um, I noticed on Twitter that you are starting to work with a new game or you're planning on putting some music out for a game called Presentiment as of about uh, six hours ago. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to jump on that project? Sure. So Presentiment is a new project that I got uh, hit up for about probably like a month ago. And they're a team of indie, indie developers who I worked on a previous title um, called Omori. Omori is a, was kind of a viral indie game uh, that got a lot of game sales. I think they've had like almost like, you know, viral for indie is usually around like at least over 100,000 copies. I think they've hit even higher than that, to be honest, maybe almost a million, I think. A big number. Okay. And so these developers are starting a new project. Um, and so they have me involved. Um, I can't say exactly what my involvement is for for NDA reasons, but I would be doing some kind of music um, 
if they found me through my work from No Straight Roads and they kind of want to take some of that uh, knowledge that I have on that game's development into what they're doing. Okay. And and it looks pretty early in the process since they're just in the Kickstarter phase. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes. So the, the, the video game being a, a composer for video games is part of what you do. Obviously in your mm-hmm. description on your website, you also talk about DJing. And as I was looking at uh, your various social media profiles, it looks like you've done a fair amount of performing um, a lot of times at gaming conventions. How did you break into that gaming convention market? Was that people reaching out to you? Are you contacting them through a booking agent or how did that, how do a lot of your performances come about these days? So these days I have, uh, it's all over the place. You know, I do have, I guess we we call a convention agent who gets me a few opportunities, you know, per year. Um, but a lot of times, you know, are these conventions reach out directly because, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny the, 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 you know, as we've seen kind of, I guess, quote unquote, nerd culture get more into the mainstream over the past 10 years, there's been, you know, a much more interest in conventions or spaces for people to celebrate, you know, that nerdum mm-hmm. of gaming or anime or, you know, cons or com- uh, comic books. Right. And so these conventions naturally, you know, as a tradition of most conventions, there is these raves or nightclub events. And so they'll usually like to find talent that people will be familiar with, or if they're in, if they're not quite familiar with, they're in the industry, right, of that space. And so that's usually how I get hit up because there really aren't a lot of, uh, right, you know, essentially I'm a, I'm a pretty niche thing, like as a DJ who also has game music or anime stuff, like there aren't a lot of people who can fill that role adequately just by sheer numbers, no. right? So so that's usually how I get my work because it's like, okay, James is someone who we know is that person who can do that, that who can perform and we think people will like. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense. You've got an instant connection with, with the gaming crowd. And if you play some of the tracks that you've, you've composed, then, you know, they, they, that will instantly resonate with them. Do you, when you are playing tracks that, that you've composed, do you frequently remix them and make them a more dancey beat in some cases, or are you playing the tracks straight as you compose them? Or do you have a, particular process as you're preparing for a live performance um i would say it's kind of it's kind of all over the place you know sometimes i will remix my own song to be more dancey you know a lot of the music that i write for games are already fairly danceable songs by some measure yeah um since you're doing rhythm games exactly so so it's kind of a mix of both you know and i try to you know for you know i still like to be a dj who is still you know not playing just my own music and so a lot of times i'll take a lot of popular music you know, you know, popular music, you know, whether it's like a, like a Nicki Minaj or, you know, a Cardi B, for example, and mashing that up with some game music and, you know, really just having fun with kind of celebrating, you know, to me, the goal is to, because I guess what I'll say it this way, you know, a lot of conventions, you know, when they have these rave events or nightclub events, you know, it's not going to be just people who, you know, like nerdy music. It's going to be just people who just want to party and have a good time. And so my part of my uh, one of my jobs, or I guess what kind of my wishes is to see if I can get people to dance to, to music that also happens to be kind of nerdy, you know. And so if I find some sneaky ways to combine, you know, like Final Fantasy music with some, you know, you know, hip hop track or some dance track, you know, it's 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 kind of a rare moment where you see, you know, kind of rave, ravers and, you know, nerdy people going off and having a fun time together. 
Yeah, and I think I think that's probably part of the appeal of the raves at those big festivals is that it is a place that um, nerds and geeks can feel comfortable being themselves, but also you know they may not be comfortable at a traditional dance club exactly. or festival. And so um, you know if you want to show up in your Harry Potter robes, go for it. You know, I'll, I'll- <laughs> want to come rave in a furry outfit, just don't. Don't uh, don't overheat and, and die out there on the dance floor. Exactly. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. You know. Um, you know. At most nightclubs I go to, you know, if you're trying to get through the dance floor, it's kind of impossible because people are pushing, shoving, or they're you know they're just some some people can be really aggressive, right? And at an at a con rave, it is nothing but respectful. Like like people will like if you see someone trying to get out of the way, people will like preemptively get out of the way for you no matter how crowded it is it's just you know what i love about the con rave scene is that people are significantly more respectful of people's spaces and boundaries i I really i really enjoy that environment a lot compared to the traditional spaces i find yeah yeah i've um i've done uh dragon con and momo con a couple of times and i i i particularly like dragon con even though it is so big now it's you know 30 40 000 people in in atlanta but you know, I, I describe it to people as it's a place where anybody that doesn't fit into the mainstream goes, whether you're into sci-fi, anime, computer games, right. um, you know, BDSM, it doesn't matter. You know, you you have a place to go in Dragon Con. It is. It's a it's a fun, you know, I like to use it. I don't like to use the word escape a lot, but it is a fun escape. You know, it really is. You know, you meet a lot of really interesting people, a lot of kind people, I think, in these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking about meeting meeting kind people meeting interesting people i understand you've been to japan a couple times yes i have been to japan probably six seven times now yeah awesome where all of you where all have you been you know it's funny i've only been to tokyo it's just such a lame foreigner answer but i've only but tokyo is so big i feel like i've i've only scratched the surface in all the times i've went I mean, it's it's one of the biggest cities on the planet. I mean, and and they've got all these different sub districts. Every one of them's got its own character. Have so, you been? To the, have yeah, you been you before? Could, I have. I have. I've been to Tokyo and Kyoto. Nice. Um, and I I purposefully picked those two because I wanted to see both the old and the new Japan. Nice. And uh, Tokyo, of course, was completely built from the ground up, and Kyoto was one of the few cities that wasn't bombed. So right. you know, you get to see a lot of the old shrines uh, in Kyoto. Have you, did, when you were in Tokyo, any of those times, did you get out to Aki, Akihabara? Yes. So funny enough. Um, so, so the reason why actually I haven't traveled much in Japan is because every time I've gone, it's actually been for work or some work related purpose. And so my first show, the first time performing in Japan was at this club in Akiba, uh, Akiba, um, at this club called Mogra. Uh, and Mogra is specifically a nightclub that caters to anime any song, video game music of 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 that subgenre of dance music. Um, it's a oh, man. it's a really unique space, and so for people who love that kind that kind of that hyper niche of dance music, uh, celebrating that nerdum or fandom, that's like that is the club for it. You know, I think Poor Robinson has even played there once. Like, it's a really interesting space. Describe for for my listeners who haven't been to Tokyo, much less this particular district. Describe Akihabara to them so what is it like so it's so the short name for it is called akiba and akiba uh, is basically for lack of a better word it's like the mecca of of anime and video games and so all of these like major companies so like you go there and like it's just stores and stores and cafes and and you know events and spaces that are just for you know 
anything you can think of within any kind of fandom you can imagine, whether that's, you know, obviously video games, anime, and all the subgenres of video games and anime and comics and and robots and, you know, just in electronics, just general electronics even. There's a lot of really cool, like, electronic toys and, mm-hmm. and tools and things you can get there. It's a really fascinating place. It, it really is. And, and I think one of the things that struck me about Tokyo is how much you have to spend time looking up. So if you're looking for a particular store, it may be on the 12th floor, right. or if you are interested in a, I've never been anywhere else where there are 12 floors of comic books, but there are not just one, but multiple uh, buildings dedicated to comics and anime. Um, it even, I, I was fascinated. It even um, sort of blends with the Shinto religion. Um, there's a shrine there, a very famous shrine called the Kanda Shrine. But in the Shinto religion, they have these wooden prayer votives that followers will write a prayer on the back and then leave it at the temple. Right. And what's interesting to me is that in the Kanda Shrine, which is in Akiba, they they have anime on the backs of these prayer votives. I didn't know that. And just this idea, yeah. Just I've, I've got one in my living room. It was so unique. Um, you know, the idea of combining that ancient religion with modern anime just kind of blew my mind. Yeah, you know, so. I feel like sometimes you know foreigners, in this case, you know Americans, you know, will kind of not immediately realize that you know anime is just such a a traditional ingrained part of Japanese culture. It's not just like this kind of commodity. It really is like one and part of japanese culture and actuality and so when you hear that story i'm like you know it might sound a little silly at first but then it's like oh yeah no but but anime has been this thing you know before it became this kind of commercialized mainstream thing yeah yeah it has and it's um the anime the geekdom the celebration of being intelligent you know it's uh i don't know i i I absolutely love it there and and hope to get back um uh, but definitely, if you get a chance to go back again, make some time to go visit some of the other parts of Japan, too. Uh, Kyoto is certainly amazing and easily accessible by the uh, bullet train. So I'd like to before, you know, unfortunately, because of COVID, that was the original plan. But, you know, things happen, right? <laughs> so it's how it goes. But yes, when I go back, I'd like to have a real proper, like, you know, four weeks to just enjoy myself if I can. Have you... Are, are, is most of your performances, is it done sort of one-offs to conventions or have you planned or are you planning a more uh, traditional tour, for example? I have always wanted to do a traditional tour. I've never been able to do so. There had been this light discussions with my manager about that. Um, but by and large, I do one-offs, which to be fair, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I, it's, it's kind of nice to be able to do like, because like, I've heard tours can be very intense some people love mm-hmm. them. Some people hate them. I'm not sure how I feel yet, but like, it's nice to feel like, all right, I can just go fly to a city for a weekend, get paid, have a fun show and then fly back home. You know, it's pretty nice to have for me. I like that on its own, but most of my shows are all one-offs. Yeah. I, I think I've heard some artists like Steve Aoki maintain 320 nights a year oh playing or some, some ridiculous number. <sighs> I, I have no idea how you find time to produce music at that point. You know, I don't know how you miss home. Um, I I need to be home. Like I need my home base, personally. Yeah. yeah. How how do you balance uh, work and personal life? That's a good question. I have a good answer for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I you know these. It, it is a work in progress, but uh, work work and balance. Uh, work and leisure. Is, these days has gotten better. Um, I don't know if this is a good, healthy answer, but truthfully, as I've gotten 
uh, more income through royalties, that has lessened my anxieties to pay the bills every month. Um, and therefore then has let me kind of l- let loose a little more, relax and not stress out because, you know, currently speaking on this podcast, you know, I am, you know, I have my own company and I essentially, you know, independently contract for different clients, right? So I always have to find, you know, I have to figure out my own, I am my own salary. And so for those, for several years after I had uh, not worked for Harmonics anymore, the priority was, you know, oh shoot, gotta make money in music. Let's make this happen, you know? So these days it's better. And I try to balance it, you know, by, by, Yeah, I really have a good answer for you, individually speaking. But emotion, <laughs> emotionally speaking, it feels better. And we, well, you know, is it actually good? Time will tell. Do you do you find? I, so I've heard I've heard different answers from different artists. Yeah. Um, uh, the Mister Bill podcast had Dead Mouse on a while back, mm-hmm. and he talked about spending ridiculous amounts of money because for him that was motivating because he had a lot of bills to pay, and so that financial pressure over his head was, you know, motivating for Joel. Um, in, in contrast, there's, there's other artists that talk about, you know, that, that pressure to produce sort of killing their creativity. Where do you find yourself on that spectrum? Um, the, so I would say as a producer, um, I'm pretty good about being structured and creating structure. And that's what keeps me, uh, I actually thrive under pressure when, when you, when you don't give me a deadline, I actually don't think I write music very well. Um, and so so for any project I do, and usually it's, you know, usually with clients, you know, they'll give me the deadline, you know, and sometimes they're very intense deadlines, right? Um, this last thing I did for Sony was like, hey, James, can you do a remix in five days time? I'm like, I guess so. Uh, it's, it was, <laughs> that was that was a very intense time, but it was worth the project. Um, but so, you know, for, for original music that I put out, that's just on my own interests. You know, I keep to a fairly tight schedule of like, all right, I'm going to write a song in one week and then I'll kind of poke at it and close the doors by week two. Because for me, I, I like to be structured. Um, even creatively speaking, I don't, uh, I'm someone who frequently quote unquote kills their babies. Like I'm just like, okay, this, the song is, I write the song. If it's not perfect, that's okay. Let's close it out and move on. I don't like to keep things open. So talking about closing out songs, you, you released a new one uh, just, let's see here, earlier, about a month ago, uh, Squid Rave. Can you tell us about your most re- recent release? Yeah. So actually it came out uh, last Friday. So it's been oh, very good. It's been a little less than a week ago. Um, and yeah, it is. So Squid Rave is, a, is an original song that I wrote inspired by uh, this game that I've been playing a lot recently called Splatoon, um, which also there is a big fandom uh, for it, and a lot of people on my Discord uh, who actually got me into the game because they're big fans of Splatoon. Uh, for those who don't know, Splatoon is a uh, shooting game uh, made by Nintendo, uh, and so yeah, I I want to kind of have some fun uh, because for me, a lot of the music that I write tends to be on the fun, uplifting side and high energy, um, and so I thought it'd be a perfect, uh, you know, for me it was the perfect kind of inspiration to write a song that. Uh, that channels into my kind of high energy, uplifting energy as a person. Okay. It is definitely a banger. Did, uh, now do squids feature prominently in the game? Is that where the name came from or was it a play on the cra- classic crab rave or <laughs> no, the, the crab rave play was kind of a coincidence in retrospect. Uh, okay. no. So, so Splatoon is, uh, uh, yeah. So Splatoon is a game where you 
play as these uh, kind of anamorphic squids, these human squids, essentially, um, and is a shooter where you uh, essentially, quote unquote, splat with your colored ink. It's kind of like, um, I'm trying to think of what game it's similar to. But basically, the goal of the game is to get basically with your colored ink, get as much of your colored ink on the map compared to the other team. And whoever has the most colored ink wins. Interesting. Okay. How much how much time do you spend playing video games? Is that is that sort of job research for you? In the past, it used to be. I you know, but when I was a kid, it's funny. I used to be a smart ass to my mom, and because she because I always wanted to work on video games, and my mom would always yell at me saying, you know, James, you've been playing this game for like eight hours. Stop playing. Go get your go do your homework. And I'd say, but mom, I'm I'm doing research. I'm studying. <laughs> and I was right. I was studying. Uh, <laughs> Your mom's going to be listening to this podcast. And like, she's like, yep, yep, yeah. he was right. <laughs> the few times I was right to my parents, finally. Yes. <laughs> um, but these days, yeah. So I'd say I, I try to play, you know, a few hours of a video game per night because, you know, video games are what I love doing. Um, you know, most games, it's funny. When I worked at Harmonix, um, you know, as a full-time employee playing games, are not playing games, but, you know, sometimes it was actually when I was a full time employee, there was this kind of feeling of like, OK, I'm spending literally all of my hours doing game stuff. But now outside of a company structure, it's when I'm doing more just the music side of things and not in the trenches of game development. Um, I have grown to appreciate just playing games for leisure more. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Right. It does. Yeah. When, it's, when it's not part of your job requirement. Right. It's like like. Like, you know, when I when I was working on Rock Band 4, which I didn't do music for, that was more of like the audio design for it. When I was doing Rock Band 4, right, the last thing I want to do and go home is play Rock Band, right? So, so that, that, you know, I would say for the, for the benefit of my happiness, I'm glad to be out of that space because I'll just play video games and not think about the, the development of things. But a kind of consequence is once you kind of go into game development and know how games work under the hood, you you definitely the the you definitely see a lot of the cracks of game development that I would have never noticed when I was a kid. That's an unfortunate consequence. <laughs> it, it's a little like being a producer and listening to music. It's hard to yeah. just relax. You're you're picking out ah that hi hat sounds bad and yep. they should have made the transient sharper on the snare and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, all right, very cool. Well, um, what? So you you just released on Friday, Squid Rave. Um, what is what's next for you? We're coming out of the pandemic. Where where are you taking things the rest of the year? So uh, so at least on original music. Um, so Squid Rave was the first of monthly releases I'll be doing. So I've written a bunch of music over the past year, and I'll be you know releasing. You know I have a new track coming out this month. I think June twenty fifth, and then the next month, and so on and so forth. Because um, I want to continue having monthly recurring releases. Um, the, I have a bunch of game projects and some anime adjacent projects that I can talk about more later, but, uh, the life of the life of King composer is always having NDAs. I can't share for the longest time. Like there's, <laughs> there's, there's some projects that I've worked on years ago that, you know, I think will come out this year that I can talk about, but who knows, you know, it's kind of a mystery. Video games don't have a firm release date many times it's it's kind of flexible and that that drives what you can and can't talk about it can so it it's 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 really all 
as I continue repeating this point, is video games are just all over the place. You know, a game like No Straight Roads has been delayed like six or seven times internally. You know, it was supposed to come out 2018 and then it didn't come out until 2020, right? Um, other games mm-hmm. come out exactly when they say they're supposed to. It's just games. It's it's not it's not necessarily a fault of the developer. It's you know, it's there's just so many factors and so many things. You know, COVID obviously did a huge number on delays, right? So so it just it can be a lot of reasons for a game to not come out when they say they're supposed to. I, you, you kind of alluded to working on some anime, but then you said you may not be able to talk about, is there anything you could talk about with the anime projects now, or is that, will I have to wait for a future podcast? I'll have to wait for the future podcast, unfortunately. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll say this, that um, the anime industry is, uh, if, if, I'll say this, unlike games, I think is which a little more loose about kind of like the legality of things. Japanese companies I've worked with are very intense. You you do not go out. So Japanese country companies in general, not just anime per se, but Japanese companies are very intense about you stay within your lane and you do not go outside of that without proper permissions and hierarchies of those permissions, right? Sometimes it can be like, I can't speak to what project this is, but there was one case where like I wanted to use a logo for something and it should be as simple as just putting a, like, like, like a JPEG on a screen. And I was not allowed to do that without getting layers of approvals. It's pretty intense. Interesting. I, I don't know that that's, uh, I think that's probably true of most big businesses, even American corporations. I, um, uh, I've, I've got an interview coming up with someone who works for Universal. And mm. uh, it was the first time that I've had to run my questions by uh, their PR department before uh, I could have them on the show, you know, so that was a new experience for me. Uh, usually it's just, well, we'll just talk about what we're going to talk about. So, yeah, no. I, and to be fair, like I, I, on one level, I understand why corporations have to be that way. It's just not always it's, as someone who's been on the other side of that coin. I get it. I also understand that there's just layers of, you know, bureaucracy and, you know, red tape and it's a whole system over there. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, when you get to the point where you can talk about your anime projects, I would, I would love to have you back on the podcast. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this has been a really enjoyable talk. I, I really uh, appreciate your time. And uh, I've learned a lot about the video game industry. And I know my listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's been honestly a great time. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Where can people find you online? So the best place to find me, uh, you know, if you Google James Landino, you know, all my socials can be available there, you know, twitter.com slash James Landino or, you know, discord.gg slash James Landino or YouTube, right? So if you search me as James Landino, you'll find everything you need there. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I'll have lots of links for you on the show notes page, including one to James's new track, Squid Rave. So check out ProducerLifePodcast.com and look for episode 75. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. It really helps others find the podcast. As always, you can find me on social media at House Ninja Music. And until next week, don't forget to be somebody's hero.